Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your co-host, Neil Chatterjee. Excited to be back for another episode with my co-host, Brianne. Brianne, thanks for another week of the Plugged In Podcast. Hey, Neil. Great to be here with you. Thanks so much for having me on. Lots of stuff to cover today, and I'm excited to get started. Well, we got a great guest to really dive in to all of the energy and uh, environmental policy issues that uh, the country and the world are facing. Tim Pucco reports on energy policy for the Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau. He covers it all. The politics of energy, congressional legislation, executive branch rulemakings, lobbying, environmental issues, international policy actions affecting the United States. Great reporter, love reading his stuff. Tim, thank you for joining the Plugged In Podcast. That's quite the introduction. Thank you so much for having me. It's good, it's good to hear your voice. Appreciate you joining us. Um, it's been a busy week for you. You've really broken a couple of pretty significant stories that I would love to kind of get your insights on and what led you to this reporting and what you got out of it and where you think things are heading. Wanted to start with, uh, with a big story, the, uh, the oil industry. The American Petroleum Institute, you first reported that they are going to come out now in an election year with advocacy for a price on carbon. Curious as to how you broke that story and what you found out as you kind of dug in. Well, there are a lot of people around town who really care about this. And every energy company, every oil and gas company for sure is involved. So, you know, in addition to a lot of other people, and uh, as you can imagine, if you're, if you're covering the energy space in this town and you want to know what the oil and gas industry is going to do, um, you, this, is, this is one of the top things that, that you, you probably are paying attention to. And so me, all the people I talk to, um, this is something that was apparently circulating through a pretty large group of people. Uh, I'd like to think that I'm relatively well plugged in in D.C., and so, you know, things come to me that way. And, uh, you know, this is a, it's a little bit of, a, of an inside Washington story. But when you think about climate change, uh, how serious it is, the, the really futile attempts over the years from Congress in particular, government broadly, but, co- but Congress in particular, to address it, um, where the oil industry stands on the issue um, has been hugely important. Um, the only other time aside from now where Congress uh, really tried to have a go at, at significant policy to, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions across the U.S. Um, died because it didn't, in large part, not, not the sole reason, but, but one, of the, one of the reasons that it died was that it didn't have industry su- support. That, that was the oil and gas industry, but it was also um, you know, uh, heavy industry. Other giant trade groups around town didn't support this then. And the landscape, the political landscape has changed a lot in those years, but one of the big questions around the story has been, well, how much has it really changed? And so a lot of people right now are, are trying to get a, a feel for that. And in fact, are even um, arguing with one another in rooms where big decisions are made a, a, a about that very issue. Well, it's great reporting. Obviously, you wouldn't be a guest on the Plugged In podcast if you were not plugged in. So uh, we, we, we appreciate you. Um, so just kind of curious, um, in, your, in your digging into this, is there unanimity amongst the industry? Are folks aligned? Uh, are there splits within the industry? Are there different folks with different motivations? And, and then beyond just sort of the, the 
the dynamics within the coalition. Why do you think they chose now to uh, to roll out with this potential approach? The oil industry right now, especially its its Washington presence, is is really fractured. Uh, I mean, of course, the oil industry is is one in which the, the the giant companies that have that have fed its growth over the years that have been front and center have long been huge rivals, uh, had huge differences of opinions, uh, and so you know we've been tracking we've been tracking that story pretty closely over the past year and a half, two years. Um, climate change has caused some of the has really exacerbated some of the rifts that have long existed. Uh, in the industry, especially you know the, the the big super majors versus the little guys, the independents and the refiners. Some of those little guys aren't, aren't quite so little anymore, uh, but they're still very much outside um, the a, a bubble that the super majors kind of exist in. And there have been huge uh, rivalries, huge divides uh, between those different factions uh, in how to address climate policy. And so you may remember, you know, last year. We did a couple of stories as API was feeling its way through this, and as some of this tension came to a head, explaining that you know there have been these huge divides between some of the world's biggest and right now most profitable companies uh, about you know what their message in Washington is going to be. And so you know, like I said before, you know, in trying to pass climate policy, what these companies do, what they say, their position uh, historically has been hugely important. And so for there to be this 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 tremendous divide in the industry. Um, is hugely influential. And so to get back onto what that divide is, um, you know, the, 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 there are a few different factions, but they really break down in two ways. And it's between the companies that have um, wanted most aggressively to address climate change, to put the oil industries uh, in premature behind some type of policy that, that pushes to reduce U.S. emissions, and, and, and another set of companies that have been you know, less interested in that. Um, over the years, you know, all of them have come around to some degree, at least, the, the, you know, all these companies that are AP, API members, which are typically the largest, even, even the smaller ones are among the largest oil companies in the world. They've all kind of come around to supporting some type of climate policy. They're not like the absolutist obstructionists that they had been, you know, may, maybe a decade or so ago. That has changed. Um, but there are still divides about how aggressive the, the industry as a whole should be. And so, you know, the European companies, BP, Shell, Equinor, they have huge political considerations in Europe where governments have been a lot more aggressive about trying to address climate change, pushing their companies to do the same. Those, those companies have a constituency there that they're trying to please. They're also filled with people who, from, from what I can ascertain from, from hearing them talk, either to me, publicly, reading about their employees, they all seem to prioritize climate change a lot more. They've changed their business models to try to get more into electricity instead of oil and gas, to try to find other ways into wind and, and solar power instead of oil and gas, to try to get ready, you know, to try to be a part of the energy transition. U.S. companies have had a very different philosophy on how to handle that. Uh, and the companies that are you know, independents and refiners, even, you know, even more so are committed to their traditional business model of selling oil, selling gasoline. And so you know, the, the divide has been really along those lines and in, in, in how aggressive that their Washington representation should be um, in pursuing this. And so you know, what has happened over the past year is as Democrats took control of Washington, in, in, you know, the, through the 2020 elections and into 2021, and by control of Washington, I mean the White House and Congress, the, the industry has come around to thinking you know, more, with more consensus 
that they really have to have some sort of policy on, on climate change. You know, they have to have some solution that they want to advocate for in, in Congress, because if Democrats are running both chambers and, and Democrats are, are, are not the, especially in recent decades, not the historical ally to the industry, they've got to do something to try to like to, to, to build those relationships. Tim, do they risk alienating their natural allies? Right. At least recently have been Republicans. Look, uh, uh, no one knows how difficult and contentious this issue is more than me. Uh, I was fired as chairman of FERC for advocating for a price on carbon within FERC jurisdictional markets. Um, you know, the oil industry has enjoyed the support of Republicans uh, for the past decade or so in these fights. Uh, is there risk of alienating some of their closest allies rolling this out, particularly now heading into an election that Republicans are likely to prevail in one or both houses. Right. There is absolutely tremendous risk. Everything that you outline is absolutely true. And part of this is like, what is it like to run a giant trade organization in Washington? So it's, you know, you have a lot of members, a lot of them have a lot to say. It takes a long time and it's often very challenging to build consensus in these groups. So they start working on this on this project, basically, you know, a year, more than a year ago, when Democrats are in control, and and their work is I mean, they're rolling this out now, or they're you know, they have been considering rolling it out now because simply you know a lot of their research is finished, a lot of their policymaking after months and months is now finished. But as you're alluding to, in the meantime, the world has changed, and everyone who's in API uh, is looking at. Um, so as looking at polling is looking at electoral realities that suggest that you know, Democrats may not control Congress much longer. They may not control either house of Congress. And so you know, this idea about, well, who are your friends in Washington? Who, are, who is the oil industry's um, you know, friends? That's, that's at the heart of this. If Democrats are in control, uh, the industry, I think, would be more apt to just finish their process uh, and move on. But what we've heard from everyone is that there is a large section of the industry, it's typically those independent companies, those U.S. companies, refiners um, that I alluded to before. They're they're very concerned about the dynamics that you're spotlighting, and they've argued quite it seems successfully that API shouldn't move on this now. That it should effectively you know, table the consideration of this, or at least the, the the finishing of the policy and the public advocacy that API would then definitely start doing as as part of any new policy that they set like this until after midterms, when they, when they can do it in a way that, that um, from their perspective, is not as likely to alienate, upset, anger um, Republicans who, who are rising in power in D.C. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Tim. That was a fantastic answer. Uh, as I might have mentioned, I think before, before we started recording, um, I am pretty new as a reporter covering energy. You know, this world uh, was brand new to me, but it also seems like there have really been some strange dynamics at play, as you mentioned, which have really made some strange bedfellows, not just on a, on a domestic level, but also on an international level. Um, it's forced, at least in my, in my opinion, it's forced, uh, you know, people to totally rethink the way that they do things and, uh, made kingmakers out of out of certain folks. Here I am referring to to Manchin. He's being accorded extensively by Democrats. And you've done some really good reporting, especially this week, uh, on some of the actions he might have to see before he would be willing to throw his weight behind a climate bill or, a gen- or uh, legislation that Democrats are hoping to pass. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? And if I could tie this in with our API discussion, 
you know, the advocates in the oil industry who want um, who want to move this policy now, who want to get advocacy started now, are looking at you know the next few months before the election, and they see Democrats, uh, it's seemingly Joe Manchin included, very interested in trying to pass some sort of climate and energy bill, largely while they still have control of Congress. And so in recent weeks, uh, as, as, as Congress has gotten a number of other issues off its plate, um, they have started moving slowly to revisit uh, the reconciliation package from last year, or originally the Build Back Better Biden agenda. Uh, Joe Manchin, however, you know, wouldn't sign on to that. That's what killed that bill back in December. Um, it had a very large climate component. And right now, the way Democrats see it is that the, the climate component seems to be the thing that, that, that they can revive. Uh, Joe Manchin has said, uh, he has signaled to a lot of people that he is interested in doing that. The wrinkle is that uh, there are many Democrats who want this to be you know, a, a, a real progressive bill, um, have a lot of money go out for wind and solar power, for electric vehicle tax credits. And Joe Manchin has indicated that some of those things are great for him, but many of them are not. Uh, and he, the, the EV tax credits is a thing that's at the top of the list of, of, of stuff that, that he is not so keen to perpetuate and put a lot of money behind. But even more importantly, he's thinking less about climate and greenhouse gas emissions um, from what we can ascertain from his public statements and more about energy security. You know, we have this Russian invasion of Ukraine. Russia has been a huge supplier of both oil and natural gas, uh, especially to Europe. But those are many you know, big um, U.S. allies. And, and so Manchin is, is saying, well, we need to have our own domestic oil and gas industry rejuvenated. Growth has been slower to come by in recent years. Um, this administration, the Biden administration, has, has done things like slow down the oil and gas program. You haven't had oil and gas leasing in federal land happening nearly as frequently as it had um, in the past. Um, you know, pipelines all over the place, still a huge problem. Manchin has said many times that he wants the Biden administration to start doing things to, to fix those problems. And it's been signaling that even though, you know, he, he is willing to start hearing his fellow Democrats in a climate bill, that he wants these other considerations for traditional fossil fuels to, to be given a closer look and somehow included in all this. You can't get the stuff in reconciliation. Uh, it's not likely draftable for legislative language. Is it like a like a deal like he gets some assurance that the biden administration will take these executive branch actions in exchange for a promise or a commitment that he will vote for legislation is that is that what we're talking about here that's what a lot of the lobbyists and congressional aides who i've been talking to are expecting um the, even the very things that i mentioned um are, are are things that have to come through um the executive branch the oil and gas program is run out of interior the slowdowns have been largely, and it hasn't been Congress that's been slowing down oil and gas leasing in the United States. Um, if if Manchin wants changes to that, which he has publicly said that he has, that he does, um, that's going to take action from from the president, from the the Secretary of the Interior. Um, he has said many times that he wants the, the that he has directly asked the White House to use the the, the Defense Production Act to get a pipeline coming out of his his home state. Um, MVP is how it's known, uh, through, uh, like through a, a bunch of uh, basically legal challenges and permitting bottlenecks that it's hit. And so, yeah, the, you know, a lot of these things, there's really not an avenue for Congress to do anything over, but you could imagine negotiations. They, the White House and Manchin have been open 
for months now that, that they're talking, that they've talked about all these things, that they have frequent exchanges. There is a, so the lobbyists and analysts and, and congressional aides that I'm talking to are expecting that, yeah, the, the White House would have to orchestrate some sort of deal. Congress moves its legislative package and concurrently Biden, you know, either has his agencies get to work publicly announcing things or starting work in certain areas and that he himself then maybe sends out some executive orders along with it. Absolutely. Uh, It seems as though, you know, these political dynamics, as well as what we're seeing just in the world right now with Ukraine and Russia, uh, have forced the Biden administration to walk a very delicate line. It's kind of putting this debate, I guess, between energy security and their goals on clean energy and really forced them to make some tough decisions in this space. Walk us through this a little bit. And what do you see, you know, kind of coming next for the Biden administration? Do you see them capitulating to some of Manchin's requests? Uh, do you see them taking more actions to, you know, release additional supply and ramp up production or, you know, just just walk us through this space a little bit more, if you could. Well, I think the president has been very clear over and over again that he is willing uh, and, and actively searching for um, you know, different ways to, to boost oil and gas production. He's got a political problem. We see it in polling over and over again that 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 a large portion, maybe not a majority. And, and some polls show it as just a, a plurality of people are really concerned about inflation. Um, Inflation is is fed in large part by rising energy prices. It's not just crude oil. Um, gasoline is, has been at a nominal record highs. Um, natural gas is, is rising to, to historic highs as well. Heating oil, diesel prices are, are are off the charts. And you know all these things make life more more difficult for people, uh, especially working class people that this president has has tried to court. And so, you know, four months now, I mean, even going back to the middle of last year, the White House has been has been spending a lot of its internal resources, internal time trying to figure out how to deal with this problem. And they've made it clear, really, that in the short term, um, they are they are willing to to get support behind fossil fuels, going to OPEC, going to U.S. producers, asking them to produce more. You know, in recent weeks, we've seen them um, even support um, more ethanol production and consumption over the summer. Um, they have finally um, said that, that they're going to, 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 to restart um, leasing for onshore oil and gas production from federal lands. Um, these were things that when he came into office, um, he was not interested in doing it. They, they, when he came into office his first day, they put a moratorium on federal oil and gas leasing and, and, and permitting. And, and, and over time, some of that has eased up. But it, it's not. I think I, I read that um, during the Obama years at this point, uh, you know, when, when Joe Biden himself was part of the administration, he was vice president. They had done dozens of oil and gas lease sales over the first year, 12, 13, 14 months. Um, I think Biden has done one. I, 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 that's it. it. It doesn't it's certainly a small fraction of uh, in, in comparison to what the, even even the Obama administration has done. So, you know, he's gone out with President Biden and, and guaranteed his support for sending more natural gas exports over to Europe to help them wean themselves off of, of Russian gas in the short term. And you know, we came into office with you know, a, a lot of pretty rigid support, uh, at least rhetorically, for um, transitioning off of fossil fuels and into cleaner energy. And in recent months has made it much more clear that, that right now, at least in the short term, he's willing to do things, or at least says he's willing to do things to get behind uh, higher oil and gas consumption and production um, for, for now. 
So earlier in the podcast, you know, I asked you about Republican reaction to API coming out in favor of a carbon price. What's the reaction on the political left to the Biden administration who really had maybe unrealistically high hopes of what he would achieve when he came into office with total Democratic control of Washington? How is the left responding to this administration embracing increased fossil fuel production to help our European allies? Well, certainly from members of Congress who are on the left, we haven't heard a lot of opposition. And mostly how they've been dealing with the situation is is trying to frame the problem as a problem with oil companies. Their profits are historically high. Um, Cash flow for some companies has hit an all-time record. You know, that's all very true. And for a lot of these Democrats, they would like to see the oil industry maybe make a little less money and, and pass some of this cushion back onto, uh, onto consumers so that inflation isn't so bad. You know, that isn't really in, in the capitalist mindset you know, for, for free market companies that want to return profits to shareholders. And so there's been a lot of tension there. Uh, but the, the point is that, that, that there has not been a policy pushback from within Congress from liberal members yet. Most of them want to make sure that they're set up well for the election, that, that they can shove off blame to the oil companies, um, to even you know, Russia directly, uh, and, and try to get that message to connect with, with voters. Now, uh, what we have heard from some of the environmental groups who do oftentimes have a lot of sway with these lawmakers is a little bit more pushback. They're, they're on board with, with heaping some of the criticism here on the oil and gas industry first and foremost. They've made that clear. But there has been more vocal pushback against some of the support for um, for fossil fuels broadly. And this has come out just as these negotiations on a new, what's expected to be a reconciliation bill or some sort of energy and climate bill in Congress. We've heard environmental groups start to say, you know, we have red lines here. And getting Joe Manchin's um, buy-in for a deal means putting money, uh, putting federal money or federal permitting help um, to grease, grease the wheels to get more pipelines built, or more importantly, um, to get these multi-billion dollar nat- uh, natural gas export terminals built. Some environmental groups see that as a red line. They, many of them have been fighting against, especially pipelines for years. Obviously, Keystone XL has been a huge flashpoint for them. And so you know, they're not going to be there if, if it turns out that th- this administration that they've done so much to, to support is, is going to turn around and say, yeah, big pipelines for oil and gas are okay. That's going to be a problem for a lot of these groups. And what we'll see in the weeks to come, if Democrats in Congress are really serious about pursuing an energy climate bill, is a real dance around this. How much can they give up? Um, you know, Chuck Schumer, Pelosi, congressional leadership, Democratic leadership, if they're going to orchestrate a, a bill, and the White House too, how much can they give up to Manchin on support for fossil fuels like what we're talking about without getting a complete exodus from left-leaning groups? A lot of these groups are, they want a climate deal, and, and there's probably going to be a calculus that they're going to have to accept some of this. Um, but, you know, do they at some point say we're out and ask their progressive, their most progressive friends in Congress to back out too? Uh, you know, you could see a scenario like that if, if the Democrats give up a lot to please Joe Manchin. But that's, that's I mean, I... I uh, <laughs> Uh, Chairman Chatterjee, you spent enough time in Congress. I have to imagine that this is your expertise. You, you understand that this is the exact type of horse trade that's part of the game. And I, I'd be curious what you think about, about how that might go in the weeks to come. 
look, governing is hard. And, you know, this is one of the challenges that the administration is facing. There are complex trade-offs that need to be made. I mean, I look back at my tenure in the Senate and, you know, one of the things that we were able to achieve on a bipartisan basis is that we coupled lifting the ban on crude oil exports with an extension of the wind PTC and the solar ITC. And, you know, it's not always pretty, the sausage making, but sometimes that's what it takes to move forward. Uh, It really seems like this is coming up in a bunch of different areas for this administration. Uh, You've you've done a great job, you know, kind of reporting on this shift towards energy security and potentially away from decarbonization and what it might take to get a deal with Joe Manchin. That's been where a lot of the focus is. But there's another kind of under the radar issue that is similarly structured that is potentially just as significant. Uh, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what is happening with this Commerce Department complaint regarding dumping and anti-dumping measures and what the implications might be for the solar industry and what that might mean for the Biden administration's climate agenda. Yeah, I think this is a, a great topic uh, that, that really illustrates what you're talking about with how, how hard government is. Um, the way the Biden administration, the way uh, Joe Biden as a candidate sold his climate agenda was to pair it with a jobs agenda. He has said over and over again, you good paying union jobs are what's going to come from this climate agenda. But, but to make that a reality, he's got to build up really a domestic, a domestic manufacturing base for solar in particular, but a, a whole bunch of other industries that feed into you know, clean energy and batteries. And so you know, part of his policy along those lines has been to take a look at, um, at China and, and you know, China and with solar, uh, President Biden has made China a real emphasis in all this because China several years ago basically said, you know, our way into clean energy is going to be batteries and solar. And they re-engineered huge portions of their economy to become world leaders in manufacturing the, the materials, the equipment uh, for, for all this clean technology. And so for years now, um, you know, the Commerce Department has investigated and said, yeah, China has been dumping um, low cost solar panels onto the market. You know, there is a real question about how much of these panels are made by forced labor um, in Xinjiang, where the U.S. government claims that, that the Chinese government is, um, is, has been part of a genocide, has been leading a genocide against Uyghur minorities in that western part of the country. Uh, and so, you know, you have all you know, all these cheap materials tied in with this um, for many companies for the U.S. government, a suspect supply chain coming out of China. And there's a friction. Okay, how much how much do we let this stuff come into the U.S.? And the Biden administration, in many ways, has picked up where the Trump administration has left off and launched investigations through the Commerce Department. There are U.S. companies that have that have asked for these investigations. Commerce has taken it up. You know, first, um, there were tariffs put on China. Now there's a question about whether um, whether other uh, solar materials, solar panels that are coming in from other Asian countries are actually just you know coming ultimately from China and there's a pass through through other, especially Southeast Asian companies. And so you know, commerce is still doing this investigation. They've expanded it um, to look at all these other countries as well and see if it's tied in with the with the you know, ultimately tied in with the problematic Chinese supply chain. And so it's created this huge um, pall of uncertainty over the industry where U.S. uh, solar developers, uh, renewable power developers 
can't get the solar panels that they thought they were going to get. They're all being held up by customs. Um, they have major questions over them, whether, um, whether there are going to be tariffs retroactively applied. These developers have to keep a, a, a lot of cash on hand in case they have to pay that. Um, you know, that ca- you know, having all this capital tied up is problematic. Not being able to get the solar panels through immigration and customs is problematic. Um, the whole thing has created what is starting to become a revolt from major U.S. companies and now even U.S. states that were planning to get all this material in to build utility-scale solar farms all over the U.S. and and it's just all it's just all held up. Uh, we got a letter uh, this week from the governor of California, ostensibly a, a Biden administration ally, saying you know that the, the California is is potentially in trouble. There are concerns about grid reliability because something like 400 megawatts of solar power capacity that they were counting on having online this year is is getting delayed because of all this process. So so Biden you know wants to fortify US industries, level the playing field between US manufacturers and foreign especially Chinese manufacturers. But to do that there's a lot of pain that comes with that process. Uh, and it, and, and there's got to be a reset in the industry because there there just isn't enough domestic manufacturing in the US to immediately replace everything that was coming from Asia. And so you have this problem. This is, this is just one example, um, but there are several others where the Biden administration's climate goals are, are butting up against its economic goals, its employment goals. And they want to do all these things, but you know, to, to create structural change in an, an economy as large um, and, and globally integrated as what we have in the U.S., it, it, it just creates all, you know, it, there's an unintended consequence almost everywhere you look. And it becomes whack-a-mole where you try to solve one problem and then you just create another problem elsewhere. It, it, this is something that would probably take um, years to ultimately resolve. And uh, in fact, you just have a few months until midterm elections. So, so a lot is on the line, both in terms of cl- climate change and just politically for, for President Biden. I come back to my core point. Governing is hard. We could do a whole other podcast on the situation you cited in California uh, and the challenge of, you know, making decisions regarding resource adequacy and the generation mix when potentially the balancing resources that you need to offset the generation you're taking offline might not be ready to go yet. That really was a big contributing factor to the blackouts and brownouts they saw last year in the face of extreme heat and wildfires. Uh, I keep coming back to this. I say it over and over again. I'm not trying to be funny. The key to solving all of this is to make energy policy boring again. Uh, It's become too interesting. It's become too political. It's uh, got too many of these complex political choices. Uh, I'd love it if we could take the politics out of it and let the engineers and the lawyers and the economists sort it out. But then folks like you and Brianne wouldn't have fun stories to write about. Uh, Tim, here on the Plugged In Podcast, we love to talk substance, and you did a phenomenal job covering some some really complicated issues. But we always like to close with something light uh, about our guests. Uh, and so for, for this week's moment of, uh, uh, of lightness, uh, look, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but your, your Pittsburgh Steelers are not getting Patrick Mahomes, no matter how hard you wish for it. It looks, however, like they've drafted – their Roethlisberger successor, and he came right from uh, from the backyard there at the University of Pittsburgh. What uh, what's your thoughts on uh, on the first round pick? A, a lot of people in Pittsburgh are thrilled about this. I am not one of those people. You know, I, I love Kenny Pickett and what he did for the city, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for for him 
for um, coming in as a relatively unheralded recruit and really building up his skills, getting better every year, becoming a phenomenal talent. But, you know, I don't know if phenomenal is even enough um, in the NFL. Uh, and, and, and really, you know, I think my biggest concern is that he's a 23-year-old, almost 24-year-old rookie. He's only, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, uh, I think he's only, um, uh, I want to say, like two, two years younger than, than this, the quarterback the Steelers already have a guy who's been in the NFL for, for three seasons already. And there is not a, a long history of old rookies like that, especially quarterbacks, um, coming in and, ha- and having a lot of success. You have a first-round draft pick. You know, there was a, a, a really heralded um, lineman uh, from Iowa, uh, the kid Linderbaum. At Pittsburgh, the Steelers have a, a huge history of, of having you know, the, the, the best of the best. You know, one Hall of Famer after another plays center, anchoring the Steelers' offensive line. And the offensive line has been a huge weak point. I, I would have, I'm sorry, I know it's like a great story. It's a great Cinderella story to have uh, the, the, the kid who was the college quarterback in town step up and play for the same NFL team there. But, you know, we, I, I, just, I just don't see the upside. And, you know, I'm, I'm you know, uh, like an addict, uh, almost an economist, in my desire for efficiency, I would have rather they gotten a little bit more out of that pick and taken the offensive lineman with a much higher pedigree uh, and just kind of wrote it out with the quarterback that, that they have. Tim Pucco, thank you for joining the Plugged In Podcast. Tremendous insights. I think this will be a fun listen for, uh, for folks who just want to get a sense of the breadth and depth of the uh, energy issues facing the Biden administration, the country, and the world right now. Really appreciate you coming on. Sure thing. I had a great time and uh, I'll come back whenever you'll have me. Thanks again for listening to season two of the Plugged In podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.